All right, this morning we're kind of going to pick up a little bit where we left off last week. Uh, We talked a couple weeks ago about the gospel staying front and center. We talked then last week about how God is renewing our worship. I guess we didn't talk about it. Jonas talked about it, but we all listened as he talked about it. And so we need to focus our love and our attention on the true object of our worship. God who is continuing to work in our lives and to give us a new song as he does new things in our lives every single day. And and then as a result of our worship, we talked about how our lives of worship should bear witness to the watching world about who our God is and about all the things that he has been doing and that he continues to do in our lives. And so pray today that God would continue in our lives today, the work of renewing our worship. But I want us to kind of build upon that foundation this morning by looking at how God is not just renewing our worship, but also renewing our minds. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. But before we do that, um, on the screen, you're going to see the, our mission statement. We looked at this last Sunday, and this is kind of what we're continuing to walk through, this idea of who we are as a church. We exist to love, live, and lead. And as we begin together, before we dive into the Word this morning, I'd just like for us to read this together. So if you would, read it with me. We exist to love God as He desires and others as He commands in order to live out our faith in practical ways so that we might lead others to the life-changing presence and power of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what we want to be. That's who we are. And so this morning, we're focusing in on the live part of that. Live out our faith in practical ways. And so what does that look like? We're going to see this morning in our text that worship should mark the entire life of a disciple. Worship should mark the entire life of a disciple. And so let's look at it together here in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes there, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God is renewing our minds so that worship marks the entire life that we live as disciples. And so as we walk through these verses this morning, these two verses, we see that to be true, I think, in at least three ways. And we're going to walk through these. You can find these on the listening guide on the website if you want to follow along there. But the first we see is the extent of our worship. The extent of our worship. Last Sunday, we were in Psalm 96. We saw the object and the content, the witness of our worship. And part of that witness is that flowing from the object and content of our worship were these grand sweeping declarations about the glory that was due his name. Were phrases like all the earth and let the heavens be glad, let the sea roar, let the field exult, everything and the trees of the forest sing for joy. The extent of the worship that our God deserves, it knows no bounds. So the question for us this morning then is, what are the bounds of God's worship in our lives? Is it 10.30 to 11.30 on Sunday morning or maybe a little past 11.30 this morning just to kind of give you a 
heads up there based on how the last service went? Or is it just the whole day on Sunday? Is that our worship? Or is it just the things that are explicitly the church activities that we are a part of? No, right? When we think about the extent of our worship, what we see here in Paul's letter to the Romans is God deserves our lives. Look at Romans 12, 1 again. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's not the first word that we read here, but it's an important word that we need to understand what all it entails there. As we look at that verse, we see the word, therefore. When Paul writes, therefore, he's signaling to us that what he's appealing to us to do here, what he's asking us to do now, it's built on everything that he's already written in the chapters leading up to this. And so briefly, what has he said before? He's talked about our need for rescue, our need for redemption because of our sin. He's talked about our rejection of God's glory in search of our own and how that leads to death. But then he also talked about in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so through faith, we can walk in light and not in darkness. We can walk in the newness of life instead of facing the death our sin deserves. God has demonstrated his love toward us in such a way, Romans 8, that his spirit dwells within those of us who believe in him in in such a way that nothing in all the world can separate us from his love. Paul summarizes those chapters here by saying he is appealing to us, therefore, by the mercies of God. And where we see the mercies of God most clearly in God's word and in our lives is in the person of Jesus Christ, in his death and burial and resurrection. So before Paul tells us what he's requesting here, before he tells us how we should live, he tells us the foundation upon which that request is built. It's built on who our God is as the creator of all things. It's built on the love of our God demonstrated through Jesus. And so he says, therefore, by the mercies of God, not because you're better than anyone else or because you're superior in any way to those who haven't yet experienced the goodness and mercy of God, but by the mercies of God in Christ, his undeserved kindness toward us while we were still sinners, he says, you can present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He describes our lives lived as acts of worship with three adjectives there, living and holy and acceptable. Our entire lives are to be actions of worship. We looked last week at the idea that we're really always worshiping something or someone because that's how God has wired us. We are created in his image. We are created to worship him and to honor him. And so we're always ascribing glory and praise to something in our lives. The question is, will it be the God who deserves it or will it be something or someone else? And so Paul tells us what kind of sacrifice it is, what kind of offering it is that our God deserves, holy, living, and acceptable. First, living, not just in the sense that we're physically alive, but in the sense that baptism displays for us. Romans 6, 4 paints this picture for us well, saying we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. 
the life that Paul is calling us to us here is impossible apart from the new life obtained through faith in Jesus. We can hear the rest of this message this morning and we can try to live out the commands of God in our own effort and our own willpower. But what we'll find is that we very quickly run out of strength and we very quickly run out of that willpower. The only way to live the life that Paul is describing here is by the mercies of God and the grace of God in Christ, turning from a life of sin and placing our faith completely in Jesus. And so this morning, if you've never made that decision to place your faith in Jesus, to turn from your sin and place your faith in him, then the life we're talking about this morning begins there. He calls us to live our lives as living sacrifices, but he also says holy and acceptable or well-pleasing to our God. Once again, it's only by the mercies of God that this can be possible, right? Because how can Paul write that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God a few chapters before this and then now say that our lives are to be a holy and acceptable offering before God? It's because Paul tells us in Romans 6 that God's grace toward us in Christ, it overflows and abounds to us in such a way that our sin has been put to death and that we have received the new life of Christ. We have received the righteousness of Christ. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only way that our lives can become a holy and acceptable offering of worship before God is through the grace of God at work in our lives. And so once again, the first thing this morning for us to understand is that we need to receive the salvation that God offers to us through Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, then this morning I would plead with you to turn from living for sin and yourself and to walk in God's way to trust in what Jesus has done for you. But then also for those of us who are already walking with Christ this morning, we should acknowledge, I think, that our entire lives on the altar before our God is really the only reasonable response to who God is and to what he's done. Just look at the argument that Paul kind of lays out here. Verse 1 concludes, this is your, which is your spiritual worship, which is a really good translation, but in the ESV, if you're reading along there, then you see there's a, an alternate translation there in the footnote of the ESV translation, and that is that not only is spiritual worship a good representation of what our lives are to be before a holy God and a gracious God, but also a rational service. This is what Paul is saying basically here. The only thing that makes sense in light of who God is, if Jesus really came and lived a perfect life, and then he laid down his life for our sins in our place, and then on the third day was raised from the dead, if Jesus is who he says that he is, then the only thing that makes sense is for us to offer up to him our entire lives as an offering of worship. Nothing withheld, nothing off limits. A God of infinite glory and matchless grace is worthy of total praise. Not just our words, but also our actions, not just our thoughts, but also the passions of our hearts. The reasonable response to the God revealed in Scripture is our entire lives. The 18th century hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote these words that you may know well in the hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. 
would he devote us that sacred head for sinners such as I? Was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. So when we think about the extent of our worship, yes, the songs we sing together are worship. The prayers we pray together are worship. The scriptures we read together are worship. The messages we preach and hear together are worship. And so are your Facebook posts. So are your conversations with your family, your closest friends, your coworkers or employees, those with whom you most vehemently disagree. So are the decisions you make when you believe no one else is watching. So are the thoughts that you entertain in the privacy of your own mind. Everything that we think, say, and do falls within the bounds of the worship that our God deserves. Worship that's made possible by the mercies of God in Christ. So the question we want to really kind of continue to look at now then is how does that possibility, that possibility of a life that is lived completely for God's worship and for his glory, a life completely sold out to him, how does that possibility become a reality in our lives? How do our lives actually become a continuous act of worship that sustains our joy in Christ and declares his goodness to others? How do we become disciples whose entire lives are marked by the worship of our God? That is where we need to see this morning in this passage, not just the extent of our worship, but the path of our discipleship. The path of our discipleship. Gospel, worship, discipleship. These are words we've been using a lot over the last few weeks, words that are worth defining. Gospel and worship we've talked about this morning, though. What do we mean by discipleship? We've kind of said already we're going to be talking a lot more about discipleship over the coming weeks and months. And so let's start kind of from a place of common understanding, a common definition as we think about what that means this morning. Robbie Gallaty has written these words, this definition of discipleship. He says, discipleship is intentionally equipping believers with the word of God through accountable relationships, empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to replicate faithful followers of Christ. We'll talk more about intentional steps that we're going to take toward that. But big picture this morning, what we see here is the importance of God's word getting into us as believers so that we live it out and follow him, the living it out, the being disciples who make disciples. That's the reasonable extent of our worship. It's what God deserves. Discipleship then is the path that gets us there to that place where we really are worshiping God rightly, worshiping him as he deserves with all of our lives. And Paul describes that path, that process by which God brings that about in our lives as God renewing our minds. God renews our minds. Verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. When it comes to the path of our discipleship, it happens in this context, the context of congregational worship. It happens in life groups. It happens in even smaller, smaller discipleship groups or Bible studies. It happens one-on-one. It happens as God renews our minds as we get into his word. And 
we're not told to do that on our own here. We're not told to renew our minds. We're not told to transform our lives. We're told, what, to be transformed by the only one who is able to truly transform us. It's interesting here that Paul uses these two different words, these two alternatives here, two possible responses that we could conceive of if we were confronted with the reality of who God is, the reality that God deserves our lives. There are really two responses we could conceive of, although only one really makes sense in light of what God has done in our lives. The first is that we could just continue to be conformed to this world. We can be conformed to the way that the world thinks and the way that the world looks at things. As we want to know more specifically what Paul has in mind by being conformed to the world, we could look back this morning at Romans chapter 1. It's language of being reasonable, this reasonable worship, this renewal of our minds. This isn't the first time that Paul has used this type of language in the book of Romans. He started by talking about our minds and our thinking all the way back in Romans chapter 1. And so this morning, I just want to read a little bit of it to us as we look at it together. And I'll just ask you this morning to resist the urge to point to how we see this playing out in the lives of others. And let's try each of us this morning to examine how we might at times see this playing out in our own heart and in our own life. Romans 1.18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. To be conformed to this world, Paul says, is to be futile in our thinking. It's the alternative to being transformed by the renewal of your mind. And it's no way for a Christian to live. But I'll just ask you this morning, if we're honest with ourselves, as I try to do the same with myself, does any of that sound familiar? I mean, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Are we ever guilty of thinking that our way is better than the Lord's? Of thinking that, yeah, right, God's the authority, but maybe on this one particular thing, this issue that we're dealing with right now, yeah, I know what you've said, God, but I think, you know, I've got an exception here. Or I think I kind of know better in this particular case. We claim to be wise, but then we make ourselves fools, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. That is the path of idolatry, exchanging the glory of God for our own glory, putting something other than God in the position of authority. That could be money or relationships or sports or politics or ourselves. It might make sense for a season for us to live that way, but glory and truth we know ultimately belong to God. And so he tells us, do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. You might say, right, what's the big deal if I, right, I'm thinking this, I'm not really acting on it, so does it really matter? But what Paul tells us in Romans 1 and shows us is that wrong thinking will ultimately lead to wrong living. He talks about living marked by lust and impurity. He describes those with a debased mind as filled with evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hatred, pride, and as being disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. He says that where we find such things, even in our own lives, we find the fruit of wrong thinking. And then in verse 32 of chapter 1, he says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Conformity to the world in our thinking, church, it will lead to conformity to the world's standards of living. And when that happens, eventually we will endorse, we'll explain, we'll excuse, we will justify every immoral act so long as it fits with our agenda. But our justification cannot be found in the failures of others, right? If we're saying, I'm okay because they've done worse, that's not what the Scriptures teach us. What Paul points us to here in Romans is the justification that is found not in the failures of others, but in the victory of Jesus. He points us to the fact that God's righteousness is not a moving target, and that God's truth doesn't change to line up with our preferences. The person being transformed by the renewal of their mind is not just different in their thinking, but also in their words and in their speech because we will see and think all things through the lens of God's truth revealed in his word. The path of our discipleship, the path toward a life that rightly worships God to the full extent that he deserves is God renewing our minds by his word and by his spirit. The person whose mind is being renewed, you see, is a person who seeks the glory of God above all else in this world. The transformation in thinking will become a transformation in our lives as God's word becomes the filter by which we understand and view the world. And I don't want to give you the impression this morning as we talk a lot about God renewing our minds, as we talk a lot about our thinking, that the path of discipleship is merely just about education and knowledge and us learning a lot of facts about God because it's not. That's not what Paul indicates. Discipleship isn't just about us memorizing a game plan, so to speak, and then going out into our lives to school or to work or wherever we go and then trying to execute that plan. It's about the type of knowledge that transforms. It's about a personal, relational knowledge. I saw this tweet this week that says, the essence of the Christian message is not behave, but behold. That's what Paul is saying here as he grounds the transformation of the Christian life in the mercies of God in Christ. But it's also what he says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where he would write, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Being transformed more and more into the image of Christ as we behold who Christ is and as we walk with him, as we walk toward him. Just think for a moment about your closest human relationship. Maybe it's a spouse, a sibling, a child, a parent, a friend, whoever that relationship is for you. 
What happens when you know someone really, really well? When you're around them all the time? If you kind of begin to pick up their mannerisms maybe or their patterns of speech, their ways of thinking to the point that you know how they're going to react to something before you even say it or before you even hear it. Maybe you even begin to think alike, right? Perhaps in ways that scare you at times. On a far more glorious scale, that's what Paul is saying happens when we spend time with Jesus. He says when we spend time with Christ, the more we'll look like him, the more we'll live like him, the more we'll sound like him. When we spend time in his word, then we'll come to reflect his heart to those around us. And so when we say we need to be reading the scriptures, when we say you need to have a consistent time in God's word, we don't mean that to say, right, like go to your room, do your homework, this is what you need to do. What we're saying is, have you talked with Jesus? Have you taken time to hear from the one who loved you enough to lay down his life for you. He has spoken to you. He has revealed to you in this book his will, his plan for your life, his love, and all the ways that he has fulfilled his promises to you. It's full of his promises to you. And so when we talk about the path of discipleship, we're saying that God renews our minds and that he does it when we are in his word with one another when we're holding one another accountable, when God's spirit is applying his truth to our hearts in ways that transform our thinking and then also our lives. That's when worship will mark the entire life that we live as disciples. So the extent of our worship determines the path of our discipleship. That brings us finally to the result of our discipleship. We've already gotten there a little bit, but the rest of verse 2 in Romans 12 says, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is the result of our discipleship? What's the result of a renewed mind? It's that we're able to then discern and to walk in the will of God. The idea there, as Paul puts it, is to put it to the test, not just to think about it or to talk about it. We're good at doing that sometimes. But there's a time then to go and to live it out, to put it to the test, to put it in action and see how it works. And the result of our discipleship isn't just that we're able to rightly think through things and process them, it's that we're then able to live it out in our lives. The result of our discipleship is that God's will is done. God's will is done in our lives. And in the process, God is pleased with the good work that he's doing in our lives. There's no better place for us to be There's no better place for us to walk than directly in the center of God's will for our lives. Worship marks the entire life of a disciple, and that'll look very differently as we live that out from conformity to the world. Walking in God's will is going to look very differently at times from just walking according to our own will, our own flesh. And so Paul paints a picture for us here, really beginning in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 and going all the way through much of the rest of the book, much of all the way through chapter 15. If you have time to read it later, I would encourage you to do that. But I'll just highlight a few of the things he points us to here. The life of someone with a renewed mind should look differently than the lives of the culture around us. Romans 12 Beginning in verse 9, he writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. 
Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Just as we think about that, right? I mean, we're good at trying to win the argument. We're good at trying to win the moment. Right? But what if winning looked like us trying to show more honor, to show more love than the person that we're talking to, the person we're around, our neighbor, our brother, our sister. Verse 11, he says, Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a type of life that requires a new way of thinking. He goes on in Romans 13, 13 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur Judgment, different way of thinking. Romans 13, 8, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Romans 14, 13, he talks about the differences that might arise between us as brothers and sisters and how we should react in those cases. He says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Decide before it happens never to be a stumbling block to one another. As we walk with Christ and as we are shaped by his word, God is renewing our minds and the renewal of our minds will bring about the result of our discipleship that God's will is done in our lives. Which sounds familiar maybe because it's how God told us to pray, right? In the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus taught us how to pray, he said to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then as Jesus came to the end of his life, he was pleading with his father to spare him the agony of the cross, but knowing that his death on the cross was the only way that you and I could be rescued from our sin and the futility of our own thinking, Jesus prayed in Matthew 26, not as I will, but as you will. And so Paul calls us to put aside our will, to put aside our pleasure for the good of others in Romans 15.2, he calls us to follow the example of Christ. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The result of our discipleship is that God's will is done as we are conformed to the image of Jesus. It's that we would follow him to victory and hope and glory by walking the same path that he walked. A path that lays down our lives for the sake of others. A path that takes up our cross and follows him. A path that lives for God's glory and God's glory alone. And is willing to sacrifice for the good of others, for the good of one another in Christ and for the good of those who desperately need to know the hope that Jesus offers. That is the result of our discipleship. It's that God's will is done in our lives. That's when worship marks the entire life of a disciple. And so if God is who he claims to be and he's done what he claims, has done what he's claimed to have done, then Trusting him with all our lives, our entire lives, it's the only response that makes sense. And so this morning, I would just ask you again, have you ever trusted in Jesus to save you from your sins? If not, then this morning can be the time that you leave behind the futility of sin and the darkness of your sin and place your faith in Jesus and experience the light and the hope and the joy that comes with knowing him, the victory that comes in walking with Jesus. This morning can be the time that you experience God's grace and his mercies. He is the one against whom we have sinned, and yet he's the one who sent his son to save us. I mean, this morning I would just plead with you, will you trust in Jesus? And if you've already done that, if you've already placed your faith in him this morning, then as we look at what Paul calls us to, this life here, then I would ask you, Is there some part of your life that you've been holding back from the God who rightly deserves it? An area where you need to repent, where you need to confess to the Lord that your thinking has been conformed to the world more than it has been transformed by his word and his spirit? If we confess that, he is faithful to forgive. I trust that he will do what he says he will do here in his word as we seek him and as we walk in his word that he will transform our thinking and he will transform our lives. So do you need to commit yourself today to a regular rhythm of receiving God's word, whether that's on your own or maybe you need to get involved in a life group or is there something that you've known is God's will for your life for some time now? Something that God is calling you to do? Something he's calling you to maybe to risk for him, something that he's calling you to step out and obey him in, maybe something new, something scary, whatever that is today that God is leading us to do. Let's be a people who hold nothing back from our God who has held nothing back from us. Let's do whatever God is leading us to do and do that every day because worship should mark our entire lives as disciples. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your grace poured out in Jesus who lived a, who came to this earth and lived a perfect life and then laid down his life on the cross for our sins and in our place. He was raised on the third day, God, so that we have hope and victory over sin and death, victory that draws us together in this place this morning and 
draws us together to worship you, even if that is online this morning, Lord, that makes us relentless in our, in our love and our pursuit of you this morning because you've been relentless in your love of us, God. We confess this morning that we fall short. We confess that at times our thinking and our living looks more like the world around us than it looks like Jesus. But we pray this morning that you would show us this morning where you need to renew our thinking. And that as you show us that, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would renew our minds and that you would renew our hearts, that you would transform our lives, that we would walk with Christ and that we would walk with him in such a way that people would hear us say, that hear our lives declare with one voice that Jesus is the only hope, that Jesus is worth our entire lives, that he's worth everything that we've ever had or worth anything we could possibly attain in this life, Lord, but that Jesus is worth all of it because he, Lord, he is the one who is blessed forever and ever. Lord, you are the one who is worthy of our praise and honor and glory. You are the one who offers us joy and hope that isn't just for the moment, God, but that's for for our entire lives and for all of eternity. So God, help us to be a people who are shaped by your word and be a people whose hearts and our, our minds are, are shaped by your way of thinking, who see those around us through, through the lens of your word and through the lens of eternity, Lord, as people who are created in your image, people who are loved by you, and people then, Lord, who are loved by us. God, we pray this morning that as you speak to our hearts, as you call us to trust you, whether for the first time or you call us to take some step of obedience, God, that we would be faithful to follow you wherever you lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.